Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Veronica Guerin was in court. This, in and of itself, was not unusual. In her years spent reporting on drug lords, sex traffickers, and murderers for hire as one of Ireland's foremost crime journalists, the 36-year-old Dubliner had seen her fair share of courtrooms. Today, however, she would be the one facing down the judge. Guerin had been charged with speeding, caught doing 104 miles per hour on the NACE dual carriageway, And it wasn't her first offense. She was nervous, fearful that she might end up with a driving ban. Losing her license would make her already tricky job infinitely more difficult. Having to rely on public transport rather than her beloved bright red Opel Calibra to chase down the heavyweights of Dublin's criminal underworld was not a scenario she wanted to entertain. When she walked out of Nace District Court a short while later with just a slap wrist and a fine, She was grinning from ear to ear. She waved goodbye to her solicitor and got into her car. It was June 26, 1996, a beautiful summer's day. Veronica was driving down the N7 on her way into Dublin for a meeting with her employers at the Sunday Independent. She had a story in the works about a man named John Trainer and his alleged links to drug trafficking. Trainer wanted the piece suppressed and was threatening an injunction. The paper's editor, Angus Fanning, had called in the Independent's legal team to discuss next steps. Nicknamed the coach, Trainer was a known associate of John Gilligan. In the pecking order of Irish crime, Gilligan was near, if not at, the very top. A notorious drug kingpin whose extensive criminal operation had made him a multimillionaire. Gilligan and Veronica had locked horns on several occasions. In fact, just 24 hours earlier, Veronica had been giving evidence in an assault case against Gilligan, claiming he had attacked her after she had turned up unannounced at his home in Enfield, County Meath, in September 1995. It was an encounter that she wouldn't soon forget. As Veronica drove, taking care to keep to the speed limit, she made several calls. She rang Angus, filling her boss in on her plans for the rest of the day. Next, she rang her mother, Bernie, to tell her the good news about her court appearance. At 12.54pm, as Veronica stopped for a red light at the junction of Boot Road and Nace Road, 
she made her third and final call, this time to a friend, a Garda in the Irish police. As Girin spoke, a motorbike carrying a pillion passenger advanced through the stationary traffic, coming to a stop parallel with her car. Girin, focused on her phone call, didn't notice the bike at first. Both men were dressed in dark leathers, their identities hidden beneath their helmets. Veronica's friend didn't pick up. The call goes to voicemail. As she cheerfully recounts her court appearance and her delight at coming away with just a 150-pound fine, she's interrupted mid-sentence by a loud crack. Veronica's passenger window explodes, sending shards of glass everywhere. Girin spins to her right and is greeted by the sight of a revolver pointed in her direction before she has a chance to react. Her attacker fires twice, hitting the journalist in the chest, throwing her backwards across the passenger seat. Four more shots are fired in quick succession before the motorbike, tires squealing, takes off at speed, disappearing from the scene as quickly as it had arrived. As the traffic lights change from red to green, Veronica's car doesn't budge. From What's the Story Sounds, you're listening to Crosshairs. In each episode, you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 4, Veronica Girin. The series of events which led to Veronica Girin's murder were set into motion in the autumn of 1990, when she walked into the offices of the Sunday Business Post. Veronica didn't have a scheduled meeting with anyone from the newly established paper, but her charm and perseverance ensured she soon found herself in a room with the deputy editor, Aileen O'Toole. Girin had no journalism experience. She'd worked as an accountant, a travel agent, and for a short and unprofitable time, run her own catering company. What she did have was a keen interest in politics and a good nose for a story. O'Toole decided to give her a shot. Girin worked for the paper for three years before making a move to the Sunday Tribune, where her career kicked into a new gear. Journalism is a competitive industry. Every week, dozens of reporters will chase the same leads, desperate for the scoop that will get them the coveted front-page byline. Girin's potent combination of intelligence, charm, and tenacity allowed her to generate stories of national significance at a rate that made her the envy of her peers. In November 1993, she landed the interview that made her career. Eamon Casey was a prominent Irish Catholic bishop who went into hiding after it emerged he'd broken his vow of chastity. Casey had fathered a child with an American woman named Annie Murphy. The Catholic Church sent him to Ecuador hoping that by putting 5,000 miles between Casey and the Irish press, the story would be swept under the rug. What they hadn't counted on was Veronica, 
who spent months working out his location before flying out to Ecuador on her own dime. She managed to track the disgraced bishop down and after much persuasion, convinced Casey to speak with her. The subsequent interviews made waves in Ireland and in turn made Girin a superstar. Shortly after their publication, she was headhunted by the Sunday Independent, then Ireland's best-selling newspaper, where she turned her attention to Dublin's criminal underworld. John Trainer was a precocious crook, breaking into his first house at the tender age of 13. The Dublin native soon graduated from petty theft to financial fraud. Counterfeit checks were his speciality. More than anything else, though, Trainer was a fixer, someone who dealt in information, logistics, and acted as the connective tissue between the legitimate and illegitimate sides of criminal enterprise. He was a close associate of Martin the General Cahill, one of the most notorious felons in Irish history. Trainer was an instrumental figure in the infamous O'Connor heist, in which Cahill and his gang, after months of careful planning, knocked over a jeweler's in South Dublin. Their £1.5 million haul, which included gold bars, precious stones and thousands of gold rings, was the biggest robbery in the state's history. Cahill with his blatant disregard for authority, was a figure of fascination for the Irish media. Girin was no exception and ran several pieces on the man during her time at The Independent. One of these focused on his peculiar love life. Cahill was married to a woman named Frances Lawless, with whom he had five children. It was rumored that he had also fathered a number of children with his wife's sister. Veronica's source for the article, the general's two women, was trainer. Giran phoned him up out of the blue, introduced herself as a journalist, and requested a meeting at a coffee shop on Montague Street. When Trainer asked Giran why she wanted to see him, she replied, It's in your interest. Trainer's curiosity was sufficiently piqued. He believed having a friend in the media would allow him to direct people's attention towards the illicit activities of his colleagues whilst keeping his own name out of print. He was a man used to playing both sides having cooperated with the authorities after being sentenced to seven years in prison in the UK for handling stolen bonds, offering up useful details on a number of Irish criminals. Trainer was a model prisoner and was eventually granted temporary home leave. After taking advice from a solicitor who said the chances of Trainer being extradited back to the UK were slim, he decided not to return to finish his sentence. He soon took up with John Gilligan, and became a key figure in his drug smuggling business. But he always took care to play the part of the reformed criminal now on the straight and narrow, regularly offering his contacts in the police and media some nuggets of information. Eventually, his willingness to play both sides caught up with him. Members of Cahill's gang started to become suspicious that Trainer was gear and source for her stories on the recently deceased gangster He'd been shot and killed outside his home by the IRA. He needed to distance himself from her, and quickly. On the night of October 7th, 1994, 
Veronica was working in the office of the North County Dublin cottage she shared with her husband, Graham, and four-year-old son, Cahal. A few minutes before 10 p.m., she stood up from her desk and went into the kitchen. A short while later, she jumped at the sound of two loud bangs. Veronica peeked her head around the office door, scanning the room before her eyes came to rest on the spiderweb-shaped crack in the window. Further examination revealed a bullet lodged in a shelf just inches above where she'd been sitting moments earlier. Veronica called the guards. The second bullet was later found to have shattered the gutter on the rear of the house. With her back to the window, Veronica would have been an easy target. This wasn't an attempt on her life, of that she was certain. It was a warning. Dublin's criminals didn't want her writing about them anymore. But Veronica wasn't one to run from a fight. Within 24 hours, she was back on her beat. John Trainer was in a bind. He had made it known in the seedy circles he ran in that he was responsible for the warning shots fired at Guerin's home. But the stunt had done little to salvage his rapidly deteriorating reputation. He'd convinced himself that he was in the driving seat in his relationship with the journalist. But his colleagues knew he was way out of his depth. Guerin was now writing about him, referring to him as the coach in an article in which he claimed to be the most cunning as well as the most financially successful fraudster in the country. Trainer's associates were deeply concerned. This vainglorious gossiper was going to get them all arrested. Trainer knew his future hung in the balance. If he wanted to remain in good standing with the denizens of Dublin's criminal underworld, he would need to take action. And this time, a warning shot wouldn't be enough. January 30th, 1995 was a Monday. Veronica arrived home shortly before six. The house was empty, save for her two Rottweilers, who greeted her enthusiastically. Veronica's husband was at the funeral of a family friend, and their son, Cahill, was being looked after by her mother-in-law. Veronica had a busy night ahead of her. She was scheduled to be a guest on Jerry Ryan Tonight, a current affairs program where she would be discussing her work and the state of crime in Ireland. After that, she had a far more daunting appointment, the Sunday Independent Christmas Party. Veronica switched on the six o'clock news. At roughly 6.25, she received a phone call from her colleague at the Independent, Lisa Hand. They chatted briefly about Veronica's upcoming TV appearance and what they were going to wear for the work do. The conversation was interrupted by a series of loud knocks on the front door. Veronica told Lisa she'd see her at the party later and hung up. As she lifted the latch on the door, it exploded open, knocking her to the floor. A tall, broad man dressed in a dark striped jacket and a motorcycle helmet advanced into the hallway, shutting the door behind him. He had a gun. Veronica, certain she was about to die, raised her hands above her head in a futile effort to protect herself, screaming at him to stop. For in the next few moments passed by in a blur. Her attacker pointed his gun at her head before lowering the weapon and shooting her in the thigh instead. She remembered hearing his heavy steps as he ran out the door, 
quickly followed by an agonizing, stinging sensation coming from her wounded leg. Girin dragged herself across the floor to the cordless phone and called the guards. She was taken in an ambulance to Beaumont Hospital, where she underwent surgery. The bullet had narrowly missed a major artery. She'd been lucky. So lucky, in fact, that her surgeon had used the word miraculous no less than four times in his report. Girin's attacker had been instructed to kill her, but had seemingly lost his nerve. Veronica made a full recovery and, unsurprisingly, was soon back at work. She was determined to let her enemies know that she couldn't be intimidated, that she wouldn't stop naming and shaming them in the press at every opportunity. She decided, while still on crutches, to meet with all of her gangland contacts, including John Trainer. Whilst the outcome of the hit had been less than satisfactory, Trainer had timed the attack well. Girin had written several stories about Jerry the Monk Hutch over the previous few weeks, detailing the North Dublin crime kingpin's £2.8 million robbery of a cash-holding centre. When she was shot, Hutch was at the top of the police's list of suspects. But over time, he was ruled out, and after several weeks of investigations, the police felt strongly that Trainer was their man, but they didn't have sufficient evidence to pin it on him. Veronica was no fool. She had her own suspicions about Trainer, but considered him small fry in the grand scheme of things. She had her eyes set on a much bigger prize. In 1995, John Gilligan had plenty to smile about. Standing in the conservatory of his elegant Meath property, with its tree-lined drive, the pint-sized 43-year-old had come a long way from his humble beginnings in a North Dublin tenement. In just three decades, he'd transformed from a street thug stealing chickens from local farmers into a drug kingpin, the country's single biggest importer of cannabis. The authorities were certainly aware of him and his illicit activities, but Gilligan was a shrewd operator and had so far managed to keep them largely at bay. He had secured the funds for his first drug purchase back in 1993, with the money he'd been making from smuggled cigarettes and tobacco, supplemented by a loan from Martin Cahill. Working with Trainer, he made a deal for 170 kilos of Moroccan cannabis, purchased from a South American dealer, which was flown in from Amsterdam, before being unloaded in Gilligan's warehouse in Dublin. The shipments would be labelled as machine parts or furniture addressed to made-up engineering companies with force invoices to match. In just over two years, Gilligan would successfully smuggle more than 26,000 kilos of hashish into the country, making him a very, very wealthy man. He had just one problem. How was he going to spend all that money? His solution? Jessbrook Equestrian Centre, a 1.5 million euro state-of-the-art riding school and show-jumping arena, located in Muckland, County Meath, just a stone's throw away from Gilligan's country pile. Jasbrook was at the time the biggest indoor equestrian centre in the country. For Gilligan, it was also a play for respectability. He hoped that by establishing a first-class facility, that he'd be embraced by the equestrian community. 
that never quite came to pass. The high society types who populated the horse riding world would never fully embrace a known drug dealer. In fact, the locals referred to the sprawling 55-acre complex as Hash Hall. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. On the morning of September 14th, Girin decided that she needed to see the operation for herself. She'd already sent Gilligan a letter telling him she was interested in speaking with him about the centre, but had received no reply. She pulled up to the centre shortly before 9am and asked a staff member if the owner was about. She learned that he wasn't there that morning, but could most likely be found at his nearby home. Girin drove the short distance to Gilligan's house, pulling over at the security gate to his drive. She pressed the intercom several times, and when nothing happened, she stood in front of the security camera to make herself known. A few seconds later, the gate swung open. Veronica hesitated. She wasn't sure if someone would make their way out to her or if she should walk down the drive to the house. After a minute or two of waiting, she jumped back into her car and drove up to Gilligan's property. She took a deep breath and knocked on the door. Gilligan, a short, broad man with a shock of white hair, opened the door. He was wearing a silk dressing gown and a quizzical expression. He asked the journalist who she was. She replied, I'm Veronica Girin from the Sunday Independent. I want to ask you some questions. Gilligan's face darkened. Without warning, he lunged at Veronica, taking her by the throat with one hand and beating her about the head and chest with the other. Veronica was completely taken aback, unable to gather her composure as the blows rained down. Gilligan started to scream at her, snarling that he'd murder her husband and her entire family if she wrote so much as one word about him. He threw her against the bonnet of the car. Veronica, shell-shocked, slid to the ground, as she struggled to her feet, Gilligan roared at her to get off his property. She leaned against her car door, fumbling desperately for the handle. She managed to get it open, but Gilligan wasn't done. He shoved her angrily into the driver's seat. As Girin scrambled to get her keys in the ignition, he ripped her jacket and tore open her shirt, bellowing, Where's the wire? Satisfied she wasn't wearing one, he slammed the car door shut, yelling at her to get out. Girin accelerated harshly, speeding down the drive, blinking through tears. She wasn't naive enough to think Gilligan would have welcomed her into his home with open arms, but physically assault her? That she hadn't expected. She was in a state of shock, still not entirely believing what had just happened. Disorientated, she made a wrong turn as she left the property, getting lost on the way back to Enfield. She pulled over and gathered herself. Her head and upper body were starting to ache. If she hadn't fully appreciated the violent and unpredictable nature of John Gilligan before today, she certainly did now. Veronica's career 
revolved around men like him. Ruthless thugs who didn't believe they had to answer to anyone. That they were somehow above the law. Her job was to shine a light on them. To show these seemingly untouchable criminal masterminds for the fallible cowards that they truly were. She caught sight of her face in the rearview mirror. Bruises were already starting to form under her swollen left eye. As she turned her keys in the ignition and began the drive back to Dublin, she was more determined than ever to land the next blow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As John Gilligan sat in the dock in Kilcock District Court on the morning of June 25th, 1995, he reflected on the series of events that had landed him there. The day after his run-in with Girin, his lawyers received a call from the Sunday Independence legal team to discuss the attack. John Trainer, on his boss's orders, phoned Veronica, hoping to use his history with Girin to smooth things over. Gilligan, who was standing next to Trainer at the time, snatched the phone off him, screaming down the line that if Guerin wrote anything about the incident, he would kidnap and rape her son. The Sunday Independent published a story about the assault just two days later. Gilligan left the country, hoping that if he laid low in Amsterdam for a while, the problem would go away. In the meantime, Trainer claimed that he offered Guerin £100,000 on Gilligan's behalf if she would drop any legal proceedings. Veronica declined. In November, Gilligan received a summons for assault and causing criminal damage to Guerin's clothing. If convicted, he was looking at six months in jail. It was a leave of absence his business simply couldn't afford, and Gilligan would do everything in his power to avoid it. It's important to acknowledge at this point in the story that in the 26 years since her death, John Gilligan has never been found guilty of any involvement in Girin's assassination. What you're about to hear is the version of events put together by the prosecution, presented to the judge during Gilligan's trial at the Special Criminal Court for allegedly ordering her murder. The week after Gilligan's first court appearance for Veronica's assault, he was visited at Jessbrook by an associate named Russell Warren. Warren was a low-level member of Gilligan's crew and fairly new to the operation. Getting to meet Gilligan in person was a big opportunity. Russell felt compelled to prove himself to his new boss and spent the afternoon bragging about his various exploits, including the recent theft of a motorbike. The bike piqued Gilligan's interest. After inquiring about the model and size, he told Warren that he may have a use for it and told him to hang on to it. On June 20th, Gilligan arranged to meet Warren to inspect the bike. He was accompanied by a man named Brian Meehan, 
Gilligan had met Meehan during his spell in Port Leash Prison, when Gilligan was serving time for receiving stolen goods. Meehan had been a protege of Martin Cahill's, who trained him up to be his getaway driver. After getting out of prison, Meehan quickly became a key figure in Gilligan's burgeoning drugs operation. He had a short fuse and a cocaine addiction. Not exactly unique characteristics in the circles he ran in. What mattered was that Gilligan trusted him. Gilligan and Meehan told Russell to fit the bike with indicators and do anything else he needed to make it roadworthy. They'd be back for it, and soon. Meanwhile, John Trainer was in a tailspin. He'd continued to meet with Veronica after the failed attempt on her life, and just like his associates had anticipated, he had gotten in over his head. He had accidentally implicated himself during one of his many yarns about Gilligan's drug empire, and Girin intended to write about him. This time, she wouldn't be using any nicknames. She told him as much, and he responded by seeking an injunction to delay the publication of the damning piece. Trainer and Girin spoke many times, and whilst these conversations largely focused on Gilligan and his operation, they would occasionally stray into more personal territory. During one of their encounters, Girin confessed to Trainer that she was concerned about an upcoming court appearance for a speeding violation and afraid that she might lose her license, letting slip what would prove to be a crucial piece of information. She told Trainer that she was due to appear in Nace District Court the day after she'd be giving evidence against Gilligan. Like the time she failed to anticipate Gilligan's reaction to seeing her on his property, Girin perhaps underestimated the lengths the man sat opposite her would go to protect himself. On the evening of June 21st, Mian, along with several other high-ranking members of Gilligan's gang, met in his apartment in Clifton Court. It was their usual Friday night routine. They would discuss business before moving on to a nightclub, where they would drink heavily and snort cocaine. That night, the topic of discussion was Veronica Girin. Meehan allegedly informed his associates that an assassin had been hired, a man by the name of Eugene Duchy Holland, who had met Gilligan in prison and has strenuously denied carrying out the killing ever since. The authorities had crossed paths with Holland on a number of occasions, believing him to be the trigger man in a series of gangland killings, though failing to ever tie him conclusively to any of them. The night before Veronica's murder, Meehan who had been tasked with getting Holland to and from the scene, met with Russell to give the motorcycle a test drive. Satisfied the bike would do the job, he drove to a house in Greenmount to pick up the gun. The weapon of choice was a Magnum 357, sourced from a stash of arms the Gilligan gang kept hidden in a grave in a Jewish cemetery. An associate named Charles Bowden cleaned and loaded the weapon. That same day, John Gilligan boarded a flight to Amsterdam, keen to put as much distance between himself and Gearin as possible. Veronica woke up early on June 26th, rising at around 7am as the morning sun poured through her bedroom window. She says goodbye to her husband and son before getting into her car 
and starting the drive to her hearing at the courthouse. Her stomach was in knots, but she calmed herself with thoughts of her evening's plans. Terry Venables' England squad was due to face off with Germany in the semi-finals of the European Championships that night, and Veronica, a football fanatic, was looking forward to the game. The following day, she would fly to London for a journalism forum, where she would be taking part in a discussion titled Dying to Tell a Story, Journalists at Risk. Meanwhile, 20 miles away, Mian met with Warren to collect the motorbike from his home on St. Enders Road. He then ordered Warren to drive to Nace, where he would serve as a lookout before departing to pick up their trigger man, Eugene Holland. Warren arrived in Nace town center at roughly 10.30 a.m. He was sweating bullets, his last-minute promotion to lookout filling him with dread. It was a scenario he should have anticipated. The previous night, Meehan had asked him whether he knew what Girin looked like. Before describing her and her vehicle in detail, he called Meehan to let him know that he had spotted her car outside the courthouse before parking nearby to ensure he'd be able to see when she left. Roughly 10 kilometers away, at the Mondello Park racing track, John Trainer was doing what he did best, looking out for John Trainer. Keen to ensure he had a convincing alibi for Girin's murder, he steered heavily into a hairpin bend, deliberately flipping his car. After being dragged from the vehicle, he requested an ambulance and was taken to Nace General Hospital. At 12.30pm, Mian's mobile phone rang. It was Warren. Girin had just left the courthouse. Mian ordered Warren to tell her. Mian was parked near the village of Rathcool, midway between Nace and Dublin City. Warren, who would later claim he was also in regular contact with John Gilligan throughout the day, connected with Mian one last time, informing him that Girin had just passed the air motive complex on the Nace dual carriageway, a few minutes away from Mian's position on Blackchurch Road. Warren, who took care to keep at least four cars behind Girin at all times, yelled his updates so that Meehan, who was using a hands-free phone kit, could hear him over the roar of the traffic. Suddenly, Meehan spotted Veronica's car. I see it, he said. He hung up and switched on the ignition, taking off after the red Opel Calibra with the Kildare license plate. The pursuit lasted about four miles, Meehan taking care to keep a safe distance until the time was right. At the junction between Boot Road and Nace Road, he got his opportunity. When Veronica stopped at the lights, Mian sped up, his heart beating in his chest as he pulled up beside her. In that brief second before the firing started, he could see her through the window, smiling as she spoke on the phone. Holland, who already had the magnum in his hand, planted one foot on the ground and one hand on the car to steady himself before smashing the window with the gun. After his first two shots, which hit the journalist in the chest, she twisted, collapsing onto her front on the passenger side. Holland fired four more into her back. That's it, that's enough, shouted Mian. Holland sat back onto the bike, pocketing his weapon. Mian accelerated hard, leaving the scene at speed. Slowly, Drivers and passengers from the surrounding cars emerged from their vehicles, cautiously making their way towards the car. 
One of the first people to approach was Michelle Wall, a nurse based in the maternity unit of Dublin's Rotunda Hospital. She looked in through the smashed passenger window, taking in the grim scene. Veronica was covered in blood and shattered glass. She wasn't moving. Wall, with the help of a woman named Brenda Grogan, also a nurse, sat Giran up in an effort to clear her airway. Whilst another bystander phoned the emergency services, the nurses administered first aid, checking for a pass. Despite their best efforts, there were no signs of life to be found. After years spent holding criminals' feet to the fire on the front pages of national newspapers, that night, the journalist would be the lead story. Veronica Guerin was dead. Veronica's murder was a moment of reckoning for Ireland. As tributes flooded in for the brave reporter who had refused to be silenced and had paid the ultimate price, people began to ask how it had come to this point. How severe was the stranglehold the criminal gangs had on society that they were now bold enough to kill their highest profile critic in broad daylight? When word of her murder reached her colleagues at the Independent, a deathly silence fell over the newsroom. Later that night, her grief-stricken husband, Graham, had the terrible task of informing his six-year-old son that his mother would not be coming home. At her funeral, which took place in Dublin Airport Church, the hymn, Be Not Afraid, was sung by the choir. Just a few weeks earlier, Girin and her husband had heard it at the funeral of murder detective Jerry McCabe. Veronica told Graham that if anything like that ever happened to her, She'd like it played at her service. The pressure on the Irish authorities to solve Veronica's murder was immense. They were already being accused of failing to adequately tackle the issue of gangland violence, creating the very environment in which a journalist of Veronica's stature could be murdered in the first place. The public demanded that those responsible answer for their crimes, and there was one name in particular on everyone's lips. John Gilligan's phone lit up with calls from the Irish press after Gearin's death became public. Within 24 hours of the shooting, several articles detailing his and Gearin's combative history were on newsstands across the country. Gilligan was happy to concede that he was the prime suspect, but rubbished any claims of his involvement in her death. He insisted that the media were out to get him that the endless column inches about his drug empire were gross exaggerations at best, and that Veronica's assault story was a complete fabrication. In the Irish government buildings, mounting political pressure resulted in the passing of the Proceeds of Crime Act, which lowered the threshold of evidence required to seize assets suspected to be the proceeds of crime. This, coupled with the establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau just two months later, provided the authorities with some substantial legal weapons in the fight against organized crime. Meanwhile, the investigation into Gilligan, dubbed Operation Pineapple, was gathering pace. The team, which consisted of over 30 detectives, now had the bike. Meehan had dumped it in the River Liffey after the attack, and it was discovered just over a week later by a passerby on his morning walk. 
they were also combing through Gilligan's phone records, attempting to paint a picture of who he had been in contact with in the days before and after the murder. Slowly but surely, the authorities started to put the squeeze on their prime suspects. John Trainer, who had fled to the Costa del Sol, received a grilling from the Operation Pineapple team, but denied any involvement in Girin's death. Next up was the lookout Warren, who was picked up and brought to Lucan Garda Station for questioning. He didn't tell the police anything of value, but Gilligan and his inner circle were spooked nonetheless and started looking over their shoulders. Mian, the getaway driver, clocked an unmarked car tailing him after he left a meeting with associates from the gang on the same day as Warren's arrest. The net was tightening. The first domino to fall was Bowden, the man who had supplied the weapon used to kill Veronica. After a lengthy interrogation by the police, he copped to delivering the 357 Magnum into Mian's possession, knowing it would be used in her murder. He went on to name Warren, Mian, and Gilligan as co-conspirators in Girin's killing. It was the breakthrough the police had been pushing for for months. Meanwhile, Gilligan had been arrested at Heathrow Airport when a security check turned up £330,000 in his luggage. By the time he was extradited back to Ireland in 1997, he was fighting a war on two fronts. The Criminal Assets Bureau had seized many of his belongings, stripping the property at Jessbrook of everything from the furniture to the horses. At the same time, the investigation into Gearin's death was gathering momentum. Bowden was the first to be sent down. He received six years for drugs and firearm offences, shaving time off his sentence by agreeing to inform on the others. When he was released from prison five years later, he was the first person in the history of the state to be entered into the witness protection program, fearing his former associates would be out for revenge. Warren was up next. He got five years for money laundering, a lenient sentence, one which suggested to Gilligan that he had also offered up information relevant to Gearin's murder, information that would implicate him. Gilligan's world was collapsing around him. He'd long been used to ruling with an iron fist, keeping his soldiers in line with fear and intimidation. Now, locked in his prison cell, the walls felt like they were finally closing in on the gangster. The shooter Holland was picked up next, arrested initially on suspicion of murdering Girin, but ultimately convicted on drug trafficking charges, which stemmed from evidence given by Bowden, coupled with a seizure of 20 pounds of cannabis from his home. He received 20 years and served 12. Brian Meehan was detained along with John Trainer by Dutch police in Amsterdam in a joint operation with the Gardi. Whilst Trainer was ultimately released, Meehan was extradited to Ireland. He was convicted of Veronica's murder, the evidence supplied by Warren and Bowden leaving the court in no doubt about his role in her death. He was sentenced to life in prison. Gilligan's trial commenced on December 4th, 1999, more than three years after Gearin's murder. The prosecution's case rested largely on the testimony of Warren and Bowden. However, their attempts to de-emphasize their own roles in the murder led to a muddying of the waters as the pair tied themselves in knots, trying to keep their crooked stories straight. In response, Gilligan's defense posed very simple, straightforward questions about the day of Gearin's murder 
and pounced on every inconsistency. The strategy paid off. On the day of the verdict, though the judge noted that the court had grave suspicions about Gilligan's role in the murder, there wasn't sufficient evidence for a conviction. Gilligan was acquitted. His triumph was short-lived, however, as there was still plenty of evidence to convict him on a plethora of drugs-related charges, for which he received a 28-year sentence. He was released in October 2013 after serving 17 years. Nowadays, he lives in Spain, where he's due to stand trial later this year for weapon and drug-related offenses. He denies any involvement in Veronica's murder to this day. Just over three years ago, on the 18th of April 2019, a 29-year-old reporter, Lame Lyra McKee, was shot and killed by dissident Republicans while covering a riot on the Cregan estate in Derry. The extremist group, the new IRA, claimed responsibility for her killing, though to date no individuals have been charged with her murder. Lyra's death served as a stark reminder that journalists like her, like Veronica Guerin, frequently put themselves in harm's way in the pursuit of truth and justice. And that we should never, ever take that for granted. Crosshairs is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy Lewis. Our music is supplied by KPM. Sound design by Tom Bruins. And this episode was written and produced by Jack O'Kennedy. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's the Story content at www.whatsthestorysounds.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.